Father, we thank you for being our God, being the one in whom we are fully satisfied. We're not lacking anything. That you're working by your spirit to perfect us even through the difficult things in this life. It's all for our good. It's all for your glory. Thank you for your word that is a means and an instrument that you've chosen to conform us more into the likeness of your son, to renew our minds, to have the mind of Christ, to be able to live it out, and to be able to use these truths to proclaim and spread to others around us. Father, help us now to grow in our love for you. Help us now to grow in our love for your word. Help us now to grow in our love for one another. That we may glorify you in all that we do. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Psalm 119, verses 57 to 64. Yahweh is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I have sought to please your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I thought upon my ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Yahweh, is full of your loving kindness. Teach me your statutes. I've titled this sermon, Truth and Grace. Truth and Grace. Picture with me that you're waking up early in the morning. It's still dark outside, and so it's dark in your bedroom. You need to start getting ready for work or an appointment or a trip, whatever it may be. And so you need to change, you need to get dressed. You pick up a a button-up shirt, and you put it on, and you start buttoning it up. Remember, it's dark, you're still waking up, and as you finish buttoning up your shirt, you go into the bathroom, turn on the light, and you notice that your shirt is not buttoned up correctly because you started with the wrong button. Typically, you want the top button to correspond with the top hole, and then you move down from there. The point is that if you miss one button, all the rest will be off. They'll all be misaligned. It will affect the rest of the buttons, and you'll just look funny walking around outside. They are not where they are supposed to be. This is true of theology as well. You get the nature of Scripture wrong, that God's Word is sufficient, God's Word is authoritative, God's Word is without error, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it cannot mislead you or fail you. You get that wrong, the rest of your theology will be off as well. If God's Word isn't God's Word, divine inspiration, God's actual words breathe out onto the pages of Scripture through human authors, then you don't need to listen to it. It doesn't carry the same weight. You get the creation account wrong. Your understanding of other areas of life will be influenced by that wrong understanding. You get the doctrine of God wrong. You get the doctrine of Jesus Christ wrong. You get the doctrine of the Holy Spirit wrong. You will arrive at wacky, false, heretical conclusions, all of which will impact your worldview and your lifestyle, how you live, what you do, and why you do it. And here, if we don't understand the root, the foundation of the psalmist's heart desire to keep God's commandments, we will miss the key that unlocks his delight to joyously obey God's word. And what is that key? Before you do the word of God, the word of God must do a work in you. 
The order is always the blessing of grace first, and then the fruit of gratitude and the fruit of good works. It's never, I must do the word of God in order to achieve or to merit the grace of God. It's always the grace of God poured out upon, as we just sung, my unworthy soul, that I am born again, saved, redeemed, reconciled to God, have peace with God, no condemnation, and that by that grace, we therefore live for him, worship him out of a heart of love. So is your understanding of God and his word and his grace misaligned? Are the buttons off? The testimony of the psalmist is grace given and worship is returned. Notice verse 57. He says, Yahweh is my portion. That is the fountain of all blessing and favor. And he says, I have promised to keep your words. That's a fitting response of worship for such a blessing. The psalmist gives an account of his reasonable, appropriate response to an all-sufficient, gracious God. After declaring that Yahweh is his portion, the rest of the stanza flows out of that testimony. He begins with his relationship with Yahweh so that we would see that our obedience must flow out of our relationship with him, truly knowing him, therefore living for him properly. Notice all the singular first-person pronouns, I, me, and my. Verse 57, Yahweh is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. Verse 58, I have sought to please your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me. Verse 59, I thought upon my ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies. Verse 60, I hastened and did not delay. Verse 61, I have not forgotten your law. Verse 62, I shall rise to give thanks to you. Verse 63, I am a companion of all those who fear you. Verse 64, teach me your statutes. Those are all flowing out of Yahweh first being his portion. Yahweh must first be your portion before you will be able to keep his commandments, to keep his words. To reverse the order is to place yourself on the path of pharisaical legalism or self-deception or unending, never fully having assurance on my own strength effort that will always fail and prove vain. You have to get the order correct. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. Apart from works, apart from the law. It's been said that we were not chosen because we chose Christ. We chose Christ because we were chosen. And Steve Lawson would always say, God is always previous. God is always previous. Therefore, a relationship with God highlights, magnifies, displays God's grace in saving us and through which we live our lives and do so in such a way as to glorify and boast in him. It's God's grace. The psalmist attests that Yahweh is his portion. Again, verse 57 that the word of God is his life, verse 60, and that other believers are his companions, verse 63. These are means of grace from God to us. God is the source and supplier of grace. He's a gracious God. His word is an instrument of our sanctification and growth in grace and knowledge. Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word grow is a present active 
imperative verb. It's a command. It's non-optional. It's something you must do as a believer in worship to God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is telling believers that this is something that they need to diligently strive after and that this is something that they are to do and that they can do according to the power of the Spirit working within them. The grace of God transforms us, conforms us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The Word is a means of grace. The Word is a means of grace. And also, we'll see in this passage, other believers are a means of grace, namely the local church body. And God's grace is tied to the truth of God's Word. God's grace is tied to the truth of God's Word. Notice verse 58. The psalmist says, Be gracious to me according to what? According to your word. And so if you neglect the word of God, if you neglect devotion and study of the word of God, meditation upon the word of God, you are casting aside the favor of God upon your life. You're casting aside the favor of God upon your life. And so a question, do you want the favor of God upon your life? Then you must devote your life to the word of God because God extends his favor and presence to those who live near to his word. Not favor in a materialistic or monetary sense, but favor in the sense that we need the most. His grace. His grace which enables us to live according to that truth. The favor of God upon our life is never earned. It's always a mercy. It's always a grace. But it is something that we are responsible for pursuing. And that is why the psalmist prays for it. Be gracious to me according to your word. He's praying that to God. The psalmist here is still surrounded by the wicked and those who oppose him, verse 61. Just as he was in the previous stanza where he declared his hope in God and in the word of God in the midst of the arrogant scoffers who hated God and his word. He had hope because his hope was not based upon circumstances and it was never disappointed because God always keeps his promises. The hope offered to us in scripture is different than the hope offered to us in this world. The hope of the Christian is rooted in the promises of a God who cannot lie. And thus it is a confident hope, a sure hope, a certain hope. Therefore, the psalmist looked to the word of God to be reminded of truth and to have hope in the midst of affliction. Again, affliction meaning intense suffering and despair. Hope is based on unchanging divine promises, eternal spiritual and future physical realities. It's tied to God and his promises and it's tied to God's word. So how can you have hope in the midst of affliction? And we took note of four mindful practices to help us to have hope in the midst of affliction. If you want to have hope in the midst of affliction, you have to exercise these four mindful practices. You have to remember your source of hope, number one. You have to remember your source of hope. Going back to verse 49, when the psalmist says, in which you have made me wait, that word wait means to cause to be full of hope and to expect. And the psalmist can say that because he knows God's word will never fail. He knows that God and his word are the source of his hope. And that his hope in God and his word is a certain one. He acknowledges that God always keeps his promises and he acknowledges that God does not forget his word. The psalmist prayed and asked God to remember his word by fulfilling it. Secondly, you need to remember your source of hope. You need to remember God's righteous judgments. When God's law was violated by the wicked, the psalmist had a righteous anger, righteous indignation 
that gripped his heart so that he was in fright or terror at the thought of their condemnation. That was his response. We also need to remember to sing. Remember, singing promotes, provokes our hearts to remember the hope that we have in Christ, to remember the hope and where it comes from. Lastly, we need to remember our purpose, that we've been put on earth, saved by God, to serve him, to worship him, to obey him, to keep his word, even in the midst of afflictions. You have to look to the word of God to have hope in the midst of suffering and affliction, to remember these things. And so if you neglect the word of God, we saw last week, you're casting aside hope. This week, if you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside the favor of God upon your life. We'll take note of five active pursuits. Five active pursuits to place ourselves in the path of God's favor. Not that God's favor increases or decreases. God is immutable. He does not change. He cannot change. If he could change, he wouldn't be infinite. He wouldn't be perfect. But these are the means through which we can greater experience his grace in our lives. If you do not want to cast aside the favor of God upon your life, you need to, number one, verses 57 and 58, you need to pray and please him wholeheartedly. You need to pray and please him wholeheartedly. Secondly, verses 59 and 60, you need to follow his word hastily. Third, you need to stand firm thankfully, verses 61 and 62. Fourth, you need a fellowship unitedly, verse 63. And lastly, Number five, the fifth active pursuit to place yourselves in the path of God's favor is to learn excitedly. And that's talking about learn the word of God excitedly, verse 64. So first, we'll look at verses 57 and 58. Pray and please him wholeheartedly. Again, the psalmist writes, Yahweh is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I have sought to please your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. The psalmist declares that Yahweh is his portion. And because Yahweh is his portion, he has promised to keep God's word and to please him wholeheartedly. And so he prays that God's favor and grace would be upon him according to his word. Portion has the idea of an inheritance or an allotment given by God. It stresses a close and a personal relationship to God, that you know him and that he knows you. When the Israelite tribes came out of the desert, made their conquest of the land of Canaan, they were each promised to receive an apportioned portion of the land, appointed portion of the land. As each tribe received their apportioned portion of the land, they celebrated. However, one tribe, the priestly tribe of Levi, were told that no land was given to them, but they were given something far better. It was said of them that they had no inheritance or portion in the land because God is their portion. Deuteronomy 18, Numbers 18. They had God as their own possession. And this was connected with their service that they were to render to God. And so we see that to have Yahweh as your portion is connected with pleasing him wholeheartedly, serving him, living for him. When the psalmist says, Yahweh is my portion, he's saying that Yahweh is my cherished inheritance, my treasured possession, my true delight, my all in all, that there is no one else or anything else that can satisfy me but God alone. I am his and he is mine. To have Yahweh as your portion is to have everything. And to have Yahweh as your portion is to give your life to him. And this doesn't come to us because we are good or because we've done something to earn it. 
No, we are unrighteous sinners who deserve the righteous wrath of God. The gospel is not about making good people better. There are none, not even one. The gospel is about making dead people alive. And only God can do that. And he has done that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of his Holy Spirit. You must be born again from above. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, verses 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be made spiritually alive. And that is all of God's grace. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9, Apostle Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. When the psalmist says, Yahweh is my portion, he's saying that it is better to have God than all the goods of this world, all the possessions that you could accumulate, all the reputation and fame that you can gain. It is better to have God for our all than to have all and be without him. For the unbeliever, if you take away their job, take away their family, take away their fame and riches, their material possessions, you take away everything from them. But for the believer, if you take away those same things, their job, their family, their fame, their riches, their material possessions, you take away all these things, yet they still have everything because God is their portion. They're fully satisfied in Him, content in Him, trusting Him that God is good, that His loving kindness is upon them. God is their portion. In Psalm 65, David, at the prospect of death, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, this is what he writes, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. Psalm 73, when Asaph is troubled over the wicked prospering and he's suffering in despair, he finds hope in God and he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. In Lamentations 3, 22 to 24, in the context of great lament over his own people, Jeremiah says, The loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But what does the next verse say? Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will wait for him. And here in Psalm 119, verse 57, in the context of affliction and persecution around him, from verse 61, they encircle him. The psalmist says, Yahweh is my portion. What does this teach us? That God is all sufficient for any circumstance. That if God is our portion, he is all we need. 
And so we can continue to keep his words as the psalmist does. He says, I have promised to keep your words. That means to observe and to conform his actions and practice to the word of God, to obey it. He says in verse 58, I have sought to please your face with all my heart. The word that he uses for sought means to entreat, to ask for or to request earnestly. In other words, to pray. And what is he praying and asking and requesting for earnestly? That he would please God wholeheartedly. And he uses the word face. In other words, the psalmist is saying that he is turned towards the face of God and is before the face of God. The presence of God where God's favor is found. Therefore, he says in verse 58, be gracious to me according to your word. Show me gracious kindness and favor, God. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Psalm 90, verse 17, a prayer of Moses. It says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. He repeats it twice in light of the favor of the Lord being shown to him. Moses is praying and saying and acknowledging that only the endeavors that God blesses in which his favor shines upon actually last and have significance and have value. And Spurgeon said, quote, the presence of God is the highest form of his favor. And therefore, it is the most urgent desire of gracious souls. The light of his countenance gives us a foretaste of heaven. Close quote. And John Calvin on this said, the principal thing for which we ought to pray is that God, out of his free grace, may be favorable to us. Look on our, our affliction and grant us relief. God does indeed aid us in a variety of ways, and our necessities also are innumerable. Still, the thing which we must principally and particularly request is that he will have mercy upon us, which is the source of every other blessing. It is God's grace, his favor, according to his word, that you have tasted and seen if you are in Christ. That leads us in a wholehearted pursuit of him in prayer and a wholehearted pursuit of him to please him and obey him. The first active pursuit to place yourself in the path of God's favor, to greater experience his grace in your life, and to not cast aside the favor of God upon your life, is to pray and please him wholeheartedly, to know that he is your portion, and then to seek him with all of your heart. The second active pursuit to place yourself in the path of God's favor is found in verses 59 and 60 is to follow his word hastily. To follow his word hastily. In light of Yahweh being his portion, and in light of God's grace, the psalmist is moved to confession and to repentance. It says in verse 59, I thought upon my ways, and then it says, and I turned, which means to change direction. I turned my feet to your testimonies. In other words, his feet needed to be turned away from something else to God's testimonies. This is not just a full stop in one direction, but a change of direction and a moving in that new direction. Again, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. It's not just a change of mind. Here the psalmist gave careful thought to and consideration to was mindful of his ways, which speaks of his course of conduct, his going, his path, his journey, his manner of life. 
He examined his life and conduct, and when he found that his life and conduct was not according to the word of God, he slowly, he made a one-year plan. He said, I'll do this little by little. That's not what it says. Notice verse 60. I hastened, and I did not delay to keep your commandments. This was not a casual and carefree, lax and lazy move in a new direction. It was an urgent, immediate, quick, without hesitation. I need to and I want to follow God's word and God's ways. I need to turn my life in the right direction. And he uses two words to emphasize the same thing and really to get his point across. Hastened and did not delay. Hasten means to move fast, to hurry, to accelerate, and to be eager to do so. To not delay means to not hesitate, to not linger, to not wait, and also to not deny or refuse to do so. This speaks of both the attitude and the action. Let's say that from Connecticut, we're headed to Florida because we want to visit Disney World. You're driving for an hour and you see a sign that says, now entering Massachusetts. You obviously figure out, I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to stop, turn around, and go to the right direction because I want to go south to Disney World. If you knew you were going in the wrong direction, why would you want to delay going in the right direction? If you know you're in sin, confess it, repent of it, turn from it, and go in the right direction quickly. Don't keep going in the wrong direction. Stop, turn, move in the right direction. Why is it good to know your sin? Why is it good to know your sin? So that you can turn from your sin. Why is it good to turn from your sin? Because it has a sanctifying power in our lives. Why does it have a sanctifying power in our lives? Because of the grace and favor of God upon us. First John 1 John 1.9 If, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will experience His cleansing, purifying, sanctifying power if and when you confess your sins and turn away from them. We should not love to sin, but we should love to confess our sins when we do and to follow His word hastily because in doing so, we will experience the grace and favor of God through what Christ has accomplished for us. We're reminded of the cross, the full forgiveness of sins, Christ atoning for us, paying the penalty on our behalf, so that as we continue to sin, the presence of sin still being with us, as we're headed to glory, it has a sanctifying power in our lives to confess it and to turn from it. The third active pursuit, to place yourself in the path of God's favor, to experience His grace in your life, to not cast aside the favor of God upon your life, is to, verses 61 and 62, stand firm thankfully. Stand firm thankfully. Yahweh being the psalmist's portion is not only a grace when he falls short, but it's also a grace when he's being persecuted because of God's word and because of God's righteous judgments. He says in verse 61, 
The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. As he stands firm thankfully, he experiences to a greater degree the grace and favor of God. When it says the cords of the wicked have encircled me, that is speaking about a rope. A rope or a snare, something that is intended, purpose to trap you and to tie you down. And that's what the word encircled means. It carries the idea of to repeat and do it again and again. You can imagine using a rope to tie something over and over and over again. In other words, this was not a one-time incident in the psalmist's life. It was a continued reality for his life. Notice that cords is plural. Different ropes and different snares constantly surrounding him, being before him. The wicked is also plural. Many people are on the hunt for him, intending to trap him, to tie him down. But in light of that, he says, I have not forgotten your law. I remember your word. He's not lost memory or lost remembrance of God's word. It is upon his mind, even in the middle of the night, that at midnight he would rise, which means to wake up, and he would rise to give thanks to God because he knows God's judgments are right and just and sure that no wicked and sinful thought or deed will go unpunished, and that there will be divine justice. And because of this, he can stand firm, thankfully, even in the midst of constant and continual opposition by the wicked. In fact, the word rise doesn't just mean to wake up, but it also carries the idea of to be established, to be able to stand and to endure. This is the grace and favor of God upon him, because Yahweh is his portion. This is something only believers will experience and something the world, those apart from Christ, will never know. The fourth active pursuit to place yourself in the path of God's favor, to greater experience His grace in your life and to not cast aside the favor of God upon your life is to fellowship unitedly, verse 63. Fellowship unitedly. Verse 63, he writes, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Another means of grace is the fellowship of believers. The psalmist calls them all those who fear God and those who keep his precepts. They go hand in hand. There's no such thing as a Christian who fears God and doesn't keep his precepts as a pattern of his life. And there's no such thing as a Christian who keeps God's precepts and doesn't fear God. It's the action and the motive. To fear God means to be in reverential awe of Him, to honor Him, to respect Him, and to exalt Him. And your fear of God expresses itself through your worship and your love for Him. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 14, verse 24, He says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus stated it plainly and clearly. Those who are his disciples worship him and obey him and live for him. And here the psalmist looks to other believers. He looks to other believers for mutual edification and encouragement. He says, I am a companion. That communicates that he was frequently in the company of believers. He was always around other believers. A companion speaks of an associate, a friend, someone that you're united to and knit together with. 
So in times of trouble, it is not time to isolate. In times of trouble, it is not time to isolate. When the wicked surround you, surround yourself with godly companions. Those who fear God, those who are living for God, because they will be a means of encouragement and comfort to you. There's no other greater picture of this than the body of Christ. How are you united to Christ? And knit together in love and unity to one another. But we also have to keep in mind that unity is always according to the truth of God's word. In the name of unity, you cannot disregard truth. In the name of unity, you can't just throw God's word out the window. And similarly, truth and grace go together. In the name of grace, you cannot disregard truth either. Grace and truth in the scriptures equals Christ. Grace and truth equals Christ. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, describing Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, saying, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And so anything other than displaying grace according to the truth of God's word would be to act contrary to Christ, contrary to the word, the incarnate word, Again, one of the means of grace, we already looked at not just prayer, not just the word of God, not even the trials, as we just saw that we're able to stand firm thankfully because we can consider it all joy. That it brings about perseverance when we encounter various trials. That has a perfecting effect upon our lives. It strengthens us and matures us. So the means of grace are prayer, the word, trials. Here, one of the means of favor of grace given, granted to us as those who belong to the body of Christ is, if you just look around, it's the local body. It's the church. It's those who are next to you. God has designed the Christian life to be lived together, not alone. We are to fellowship unitedly as part of one body as we are members one of another. Do not be disconnected from the body to which you belong. You may have had someone say to you, I don't need the church because I studied the Bible for myself. Well, that just reveals and proves that they don't actually study the Bible for themselves. How can anyone read Acts or the epistles to the churches and conclude that I don't need the church? In Scripture, you will not find a biblical category for a faithful Christian who neglects or remains disconnected from the local church because there isn't one. You're being an unfaithful Christian if you're not part of the local body. And here for the psalmist, because of God's grace and favor, he knows that he is not alone. He knows that even though enemies surround him, God has surrounded him with fellow believers, companions whom he is united to and knit together with to walk through those difficult times together with him. And so the fifth active pursuit 
to place yourself in the path of God's favor, to greater experience His grace in your life, and to not cast aside the favor of God upon your life. It's to verse 64, learn excitedly. We need more of God's word in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. Learn excitedly. The psalmist writes, The earth, O Yahweh, is full of your loving kindness. Then he says, Teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist ends this stanza by declaring that all the earth is full of Yahweh's loving kindness. And so it excites him to pursue more of God and his word. He knows that God is in control over all things. That he doesn't stop displaying his steadfast, loyal love, his faithfulness, his mercy. And so his assurance in that truth that God is sovereign over all things and that God only acts according to his loving kindness, that doesn't lead to a neglect of prayer. It doesn't lead to lesser obedience, nor does it lead to less humility, but the opposite. It leads to a greater humility and a greater hunger for the word of God. It gave him a positive, a biblical outlook and perspective on life rather than a negative, despairing one or one in which he viewed himself as a victim. It wasn't doom and gloom. Looking at everything going around, this world is in chaos and disorder. God must not know what he's doing. That's not the case. It was hope in God and a greater hunger for his word because God is in control of all things. Here we see that if God is your portion, you will long for him to be your teacher, to reveal himself to you through his word, and to know and learn what he requires of you. And those who are the most resolved to obey are typically also the most eager to be taught. If you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one is, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question number two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. One more, question three. What do the scriptures principally teach? The answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The grace of God comes to us through the word of God, and it's our obedience to the word of God which glorifies God. And so to actively pursue and learn the word of God is to place yourself in the path of God's favor. And so how are you living your Christian life? With a proper understanding of God's grace from which joyful obedience flows according to the word? Or with a checkbox mentality? Or a defeated and guilt-driven burdensome trying to earn God's favor way of life? I need to do this because I want to earn God's favor. I need to do this or else God will be <clears throat> displeased. His love will be Less for me. We've taken note of five active pursuits to place ourselves in the path of God's favor. Again, God's favor does not increase or decrease. It does not change. 
but these are the means through which we can greater experience His grace in our lives. It first begins with a relationship with God and a biblical understanding of His grace. His grace, which is unmerited, unearned, favor from God to us who are undeserving. And that we, because of God's grace, have been justified by faith. And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans 5, 1 and 2. We now live in a state of grace. And to experience in a greater way that grace, these things should be a part of our lives that we actively pursue. To pray and to please Him wholeheartedly. To follow His word hastily. To turn from our sins and to turn to the path of righteousness. To stand firm thankfully. To fellowship unitedly. And to learn excitedly. Because that is how we glorify Him. We are to be actively pursuing the grace of God all the time. Not to earn it, but because it is ours and we are commanded to do so. Again, Second Peter 3.18. Grow a command. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges has wrote, Our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. We need God's grace all the time. It is through the word of God that we will be reminded of our need of God's all-sufficient grace because he is our portion. Can you say God is my portion? That he is your cherished inheritance, your treasured possession, your true delight, your all in all, that there is no one else or anything else that can satisfy you but God alone. We're just saying that. That you are his and he is yours. Do not neglect the word of God or you will be casting aside the favor of God upon your life. Again, we're being on stanza number eight of 22. But each week we're reminded of the importance and the necessity of the word of God in our lives and how it is truly a means of grace for us to grow in Christ-likeness, to renew our minds, to have something of value to meditate upon, which forms our hearts, increases our affections, directs our hearts to the right way to worship God, to greater obedience. It impacts our lifestyle. And so again, I would encourage you to be in the Word, to depend upon the Spirit, to grow you, to pray, teach me your statutes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can confidently say that you are our portion. We know that you have promised to keep your words. We thank you for your spirit that is working within our hearts and minds and lives now. The work that it's doing according to your truth. Father, we've tasted and seen that you are good. We've experienced your grace in salvation, in sanctification, in being a part of this body, even through trials. Father, we know that the work that you began in us, you will complete. Help us to 
continue to be faithful to you, continue to look to your word, continue to look to one another, to see the value of the local church body, to view ourselves as family members knit together in unity and love, true companions, not distant friends. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to worship you by hearing you from your word. May be impressed upon our hearts that we may live for you in a greater way. Thank you for your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.